0: Ephesians chapter 2 and today I I hope and I pray that this text and the sermon the Lord might use and be pleased to use the sermon to put that amazing back into grace to really show you what has happened to you and what it took to to save you. Um, Last week we went to the depths we saw the our sinfulness and our utter inability to save ourselves. And today we're going to the heights. Today we are going and seeing how high the Lord has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And that's where we're going. So let's just read the whole text again just to see the context. So let's read from verse 1 up until verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That's a reading of God's word. Let's humble ourselves and let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we want to ask that you would speak clearly to us, Lord. Lord, we confess that so often our proudful hearts, the pride that is in our hearts, resists the teachings of your grace. We want to boast. We want to feel that there is something in us that makes you love us, that makes you have, that made you to raise us from the dead. And I pray, Father, that you will clarify this for us, and that we would submit ourselves under your word, that it would be a joy for us to see the power of your grace and what it took to make us alive. Please, Father, humble us and overwhelm us with your love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, beloved, in Ephesians 2, we ask this question What did God's power? specifically do to make us the church how did God take us as Gentile and Jew two enemies people from different tribes tongues and Asians, and make us one how did that happen so remember chapter 2 verse 1 to 10 shows our vertical reconciliation there was a vertical reconciliation between us and God what God did to reconcile us to himself But then in Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 22 shows our horizontal reconciliation, that God took two enemies, Jew and Gentile, and made them one. So there's a vertical reconciliation, and then there's a horizontal reconciliation as well. Or another way to say it is that Paul is showing what happened to us in the spiritual realm in verses 1 and 10. right? So what God did in Christ, in the heavenly places. And then from verse 11 to 22, how that looks like and how that plays out in the earthly realms. How now we, as a church, come together, assemble ourselves, be baptized, be disciple, and t- partake of the Lord's supper, and how that looks like, how God did that. Remember our utter hopelessness in verses one to three, right? When it says we were dead in the trespasses and our sins, in which you once walked, we were following the course of this world. We were the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. We all once lived in this, in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the Bible says we were dead. We were not sick. We were not limping. We were not on crutches. We were not good at all, right? So man is not naturally good. We are dead. We are spiritual corpses. That's what the Bible says. By nature, what does that mean again to be dead? Remember, we don't desire God. We don't want God. We don't have a, a spiritual taste buds for His Word. We don't have an appetite for Him. We don't love Him. We don't want Him. When, when His kingdom is before us and we have to say to choose Him or our own kingdom, our own kingdom always wins. It is us and us first. Remember that, that flesh, that desire of the flesh doesn't just not want to serve God It wants others to serve us. It wants us want, we want to be God. We want other people to worship us. We want God to worship us. We want God to serve us. That's what it means to be dead. In other words, being dead means we cannot love God because we are unwilling to love God. It's a moral deadness. The things of this world, the the desires of our flesh, the appetites of our sin, it just feels too good for us. It, we just can't stop, right? That's why it says we were slaves. We're slaves of sin. We're slaves of the devil. We're slaves of this world. We don't just need new makeup or new changes. We need a resurrection. I've heard of a pastor that does this. He actually goes from time to time to a graveyard to preach the gospel. To remind himself that's what happens every time you speak to unbelievers, you're speaking to corpses. You need God in that act of evangelism. You can't, right? But the worst part of our lostness is that ending of verse 3. Remember what we are by nature. Look at the ending of verse 3. It says, We were by nature children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. Right? Our problem is God. God is holy. We are not holy. God must crush you under His wrath. That's what you deserve. You will stand before Him one day. You will be judged by Him. And if you are not found in Christ, not having a righteousness that comes by your works, but having found the righteousness that comes by faith, He will not hesitate to cast you into hell for all of eternity. So that's what verse 1 and 3 tells us, right? We are dead slaves and children of wrath. But, right? That but in verse 4 should be like the oxygen like once you've been you've been so long down under the the water it's like a, f- a breath of fresh air but god in comes god god comes His amazing grace i once was lost but now i'm found once was blind but now i see and Paul would say, i once was dead and now i live right and there are three aspects of this great salvation we're going to study to this afternoon is First, God's great character. Look at God's great character. God's great salvation and God's great purpose in saving us. So let's first notice how God's great character is displayed through these verses. Look at verse 4. First, he was rich in mercy. What does verse 4 say? But God being rich in mercy. Mercy here is akin to pity, compassion. Literally, the, the movement of your, your stomach. You know, when, when you, you look at somebody and it's almost like your whole stomach turns inside out of compassion and pity and sor- feeling so, really sorry for someone. But that's what compassion is. It's ca- compassion is sorrow over other people's misery. Mercy is what that Samaritan felt when he saw that man on the side of the road and he had compassion on him because he was beaten up, he was stripped naked. And he stooped down to help him. Now in our case, God had mercy on corpses. When he was looking at our helpless state, he felt compassion for us. He saw our suffering as slaves, the devil, the flesh, and the world. And God was moved to save his people. And saying that God is rich, right? What is Just that that idea that it's not like he's just giving us a little bit of it. it's not just like he has a little bit of it but he's abundant in it there's more than enough some people have mercy but they're not rich in mercy right we how's our mercy isn't very rich right it's not very compassionate we have mercy for people that are good we have mercy for people we like we have mercy for people that can give us something back but for the bad people we have no mercy no mercy for those but god is not like us right Thank God, God is not like us. God's mercy is holy. And remember, the main meaning of holy is different. Other. His mercy is not like our mercy. He looked upon evil people. He looked upon sinful, hopeless, dead people. And His mercy burned hot for them. And He had mercy on a countless number of souls from every tribe, tongue, people and nation for His Son. God is like that father of the prodigal son. He doesn't like, when when someone comes to him, he's not like, first clean up yourself, first try to get your act together. He runs to you in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Secondly, God is great in love. God is great in love. Look at the rest of verse 4. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Again, that is simply amazing in the context of verses 1 to 3. Don't forget 1 to 3. God's love is holy. It's not like our love. It's different. Whom did He love? He loved rebels. He loved dead people. He loved people that hated Him. That's the people He loved. His love is amazing because there was nothing in us that moved Him to love us. God loved his enemies. He loved people who hated him. He loved the people who spat on his son, who crucified his son. He loved people like Paul that was persecuting Christians, killing Christians. He, those were the people that he loved. He loved people like you and me. That was sinful. That constantly falls short. That constantly rebel, That constantly ignores him. That constantly forgets to thank him. In short, God loved people that only deserved his wrath. God loved people that only deserved his wrath. It's holy. It's, it's other. It's different. That's not the way we love, right? We love those who love us. We love those who are likable. We love those who are attractive. We love those that can give us something back and give us something in return. And God's not like that. God loves the helpless. He, in fact, he almost goes out of his way to love those that nobody loves, to show up, make a point that it is his glory. Listen to Romans 5 verse 8. It's a famous verse. It says, God shows his love for us in what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are under his wrath, but his love for us was more what, what a great God. What an amazing God. His mercy is rich. He is great in love for us. And lastly, we're going to spend a lot of time on this one because I do believe this is the main point of the text. He is free in grace. God is free in his grace. Notice this is the emphasis of this text. Like in verse 5, he's repeating themes that he's already mentioned and he is going to mention to just show us how clearly this is all of grace. Look at verse 5. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In brackets, by grace you have been saved. Notice that, beloved. Notice that. In the middle of that sentence, he stops and he puts it in brackets and says, by the way, this is by grace you have been saved. But you might ask, why does he do it here? Because he's going to say it anyway in verse 8, right? Just a few verses later, he's going to tell us that anyway. He's going to say, for by grace you have been saved. Mm -hmm. Why does he repeat it in verse 5 when he talks about our spiritual resurrection? Why does he repeat it? To make this point, beloved, that this grace was free. It was free. Think of a dead person, right? A dead person needs the initiative to come from the outside. A dead person doesn't initiate salvation, doesn't initiate to be saved. It says, listen, this happened while you were dead. Did you look at the beginning of verse 5? He even says it again. Even when we were dead, this happened to you. Not you were half raised and then he looked at what you're going to do. And then when you, if you don't believe in him, then you're dead again. No, while you were dead, he raised you from the dead. To show that it is by grace and grace alone. Not even your choice, not even your choice to believe. In other words, he made you alive and then you believed. That happened first. There was first a spiritual resurrection and then you saw the glory of Jesus and you came irresistibly. You came because you were drawn to the Father. This was free grace. He did not owe you this. He did not have to give you this. And yet he did. Even that faith and that repentance that you exercised by your will was a free gift from God. That's what the Bible says. I think Ephesians 2 verse 8 says that. 2 Timothy 2 24 talks about repentance being a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God. That's why a physical resurrection is a good picture of our spiritual salvation. Think of Lazarus. I think Lazarus is a beautiful physical picture of what happens spiritually. To you. you, How long was Lazarus dead? Right? Four days. And the Bible makes clear, he even began to smell. What's the point there? He's dead. He's really, really dead. The, the body was decomposing. That's how dead he was. Now think of Lazarus trying to initiate his resurrection. Can't happen, right? What does it open the, open the tomb? What does Jesus say? Lazarus, come out. That's, by the way, the same call God gives spiritually to you when you become. You know, the Bible always says we are called by God, called by God. That's what it means. Called, sovereignly, creating that life. He breathes in new life into our dead body, our dead souls. And we have eyes to see. And beloved, it's only after he raises you from the dead that you believe. I think the, the verse that shows this the clearest is Romans 8.30. Just look at this. We've looked at this verse quite a few, a few times. When we looked at election and God's sovereignty and salvation. But look at this verse again. Look at the logic of this verse. It says, those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. What happens after the call? Those whom he called, he also what? Justified. What? How are we justified? By faith. But what precedes our justification? His calling. He calls you. Then you are justified. Because then you believe. That's this sovereign call of God. Before you believe, He first makes you alive. First you are regenerated. And you have eyes to see. And that's why Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the Lord, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Your salvation from start to finish is from Him. So that it's really by grace. That really the only reason you are saved at the end of the day is not because of you. It's by grace. You were not seeking Him. You were not on your way to Him even when you were dead. That's when He made you alive, right? Listen to John 6, 37. It makes the same point. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Look at that. It's a promise, right? Every person given to Christ by the Father will come without exception. All those given to Christ will come. Those who are chosen. Those who are called. Those whom the Father raises from the dead. Those whom He draws to the Son. They come. And whoever comes to me I will by no means cast out. So the invitation is for all, right? We call everybody like this. Come, come to Christ. Be saved. Be reconciled to God. And then those whom the Father has given to the Son, they will come. So evangelism will always be successful. That's why we can go to the hardest places in missions. Because God's sheep are there. His sheep are there. And they will hear His voice. And they will come to Him. Now, if you're listening correctly, if you're hearing me correctly, you should have a few questions. One of them is this. Now, if this is true, if, if only those whom God makes alive repent and believes in Christ, then why should we tell people to repent and believe? Isn't that disingenuous to tell dead people to do something they can't do? Isn't this just, should we, should we not just give up and just say, okay, well, if God is going to do this, then I have no role in this salvation process. I am not going to share the gospel because this is what God has to do, right? And beloved, here's the, the simple answer of this question, okay? God uses means. God uses means. Don't fall into hyper-Calvinism. Don't fall into hyper-Calvinism. That is deadly for your soul. That will kill you. That will kill this church if we believe it, if we're going to, into that direction. God decided that people will be saved through the ordinary means of grace, of prayer, of sharing the gospel, of apologetics and using our, our logic to try to persuade people to, to trust and to know that God is truth. Listen to one verse, just one verse, Second Thessalonians 2 verse 13 to 14. It says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now listen to this. To this, He called you how? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does God call dead people? How does He do it? How does He make us alive? Through the gospel. Through the ordinary means of grace. As we share God opens people's eyes and lets them see Jesus and say, "I understand, I believe." But what happened there? There was a spiritual reality that God raised them from the dead. So it's through prayer, through the gospel, through our going, through being faithful to the means of grace that God decides to use to raise people from the dead. Romans ten fourteen. This is a ver- this is missions right. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone? What? Preaching. That's why we need to send missionaries. That's why we need people to go. Because, yes, God has chosen those whom He wants to save. And all of them will come. And no, they will not come unless we go. Unless we tell them. Unless we preach the gospel to them. God uses means and he will not save people without those means. That's what the Bible says, beloved. This is what we do. We don't just take one portion of the scriptures and say that we like that section. We're going to believe that we take all of it and we build our logic upon that. We build our theology upon that. So beloved, that's why we do need to preach. That's why we do need to pray. But probably is the biggest one. I, I suspect if you don't, are not convinced by this, that this is what the Bible says. Here's probably your biggest objection to this idea. is this. How can God say that He desires, genuinely desires, all people to be saved, but then, and if, you, if what you are saying is true, that He actually has the sovereign power to save people, to raise them from the dead without their initiative, then why doesn't He save everybody? Those two things doesn't seem to fit together, right? He desires all people to be saved. You say he has the power to save. So why aren't everybody saved? Seems like there's a contradiction. Another way to say this is just to look at our text. How can we have just said God is rich in mercy, but he's not merciful to everyone? That doesn't seem so rich in mercy to me, right? That doesn't seem so great in love to me if he only saves those whom he has chosen, And again, beloved, the answer to this is we take the entire Bible. We take the entire Bible. And I would simply point you to the very definition of mercy, the very definition of grace. By definition, mercy must be free. By definition, grace is free. By definition, no one deserves this mercy. No one deserves this grace. Romans 9 verse 18 summarizes it well. It says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. Well, What, is, what, is that, what does that communicate? It's free. It's free. He doesn't owe you mercy. He doesn't owe you grace. There's only one thing he really does owe you, right? But instead, he, he gives grace to some because that's the definition of grace. But to the question of why, why would he not then save everybody if he really wants to save everybody? Look at 1 verse, I think chapter 1 verse 5 points us into the right direction. Okay, this is a big answer and you're welcome to ask afterwards as well. But look at 1 verse 5, I just want to show you uh, something there. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And then he gives us the reason, according to the purpose of his will. His choosing, His predestining, His adoption of us is according to His purpose. He has a purpose. He has a reason. So there's a sense where this is not arbitrary. It's not like God just picks and choose randomness. No. It's according to the purpose of His will. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. So He has a counsel. He has a will. God is wise. God is just. And God does everything He does for what? For His own glory. And I, I really think that's actually very at, right at the bottom, really, of this, this, this discussion is, it's not about us. It's about God's glory. We don't feel bad, or we don't object when the devil sinned, and when the angels sinned, the demons sinned, and God just condemned them. No grace, right? No mercy. Do, do any of us feel, Lord, that's that's unjust? No. We feel the rightness of that, right? We feel the justice of that. And beloved, listen to this. That's what we deserve. We're no better than the devil. We're no better than his demons. We all deserve to be condemned, to be, ju- to be justly thrown into hell. And yet in his great love, he doesn't do that. Many, many people, he, had, he raised from the dead for his son to make a bride. His own son dying on the cross for us. So, beloved, in short, when the Bible says he desires all men to be saved, we believe that. He does. Why? Because the Bible says it. And when the Bible says that we cannot be saved without praying, without going, without evangelism, without the means of grace, we believe that. And and we also believe that God has chosen before the foundation of the world. That he has predestined us for adoption. That he works all things according to the counsel of his will. That while we were still dead, he raised us up. By grace, you have been saved. We we simply take the entire Bible. And then we wrestle with it, right? And then you know you're, you're busy with true theology when, when when your mind is seeming to be too small to understand these things. Good job. Right? That's the Trinity. That's the inspiration of Scripture. That's everything true of the Bible. Okay. But let me now go to your heart. I want to I go to your heart because this was now very intellectual. This was now very. But let me show you why that is good news for you as a Christian. If you're a Christian, why that is good news for you to believe that God chose, redeemed, predestined, raised you up even while you were dead. And it's this. Are you ready? The motive and the final reason why God loves you is not found in you. It's found in Him. That is incredible good news. Did you notice none of those three attributes, you know, he's rich in mercy, he's great in love, he's free in grace, has anything to do with us. It's all according to his character, his attributes. Again, the world, what is the world's gospel? What is the the man-made, man-centered gospel? God loved you because you are special. Right. God saw something so great in you. You're so valuable to him that he sent his son to die for you. Even if you were the only person alive, he would have still sent his son to die for you. Now, the focus of that gospel is whom? It's us. The final reason why God loved you was because you were special. You were great. You were amazing. But that's bad news. Do you know why? What about those days you are not so special, not so good, not so holy, when you fall into your sin, when you keep on disobeying Him. But if He has loved me based on me, now He does not love me. Because I've sinned yet again. I've disobeyed Him once again. Because if the reason for His love is something in you, it's based on your performance, on how well you did that day. And then he will decide if he loves you afterwards or not. Do you see why that's bad? But listen, if God showed you mercy, if God loved you by nothing good in you, but by his mercy, his grace, his love for you, even on your bad days, he still loves you. It's like marrying someone and you already know the adultery is going to happen and you still marry I still choose you I know what you're going to do I already know everything about you I lo- and I love you still because I've chosen you do you see how it works I have set my heart upon you and I will love you until the end nothing you do will change that because my love for you is based on me beloved listen to this do you hear this God loves you because He loves you. His love for you is immutable. His love for you is perfect. It cannot change. Rejoice to the praise of His glorious grace. That's what God wants you to feel in this. To praise His glorious grace. But that's what this text shows us. It's God's great character in saving us. Emphasizing the freeness of His grace. But what did God actually do? Let's look at that. What happened to you? When he saved you. Right now we're looking at God's great salvation. Secondly, God's great salvation. And the first thing God did in saving you was to make you spiritually alive. He made you spiritually alive in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. So what does it mean to be made alive? Well, the clue is is found in verse 1 when it says, What were we dead in? We were dead in the trespasses and our sins. So God had to deal with your trespasses. God had to deal with your sins. And that's why Christ came. The first way he made us alive was by forgiving us. By forgiving us of all our sins. That's how he made you alive. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of what? Of our trespasses. That's what he did. God made you alive by canceling your sin, by putting all of your sin on the cross. You were a child of his wrath, and instead of pouring his wrath on you, he poured out his wrath on his own beloved son. Isaiah 53 verse 6 is the gospel in the Old Testament. One verse summary of the gospel in the Old Testament. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So God crushed Jesus on that cross for your sins. That's the first thing God did. And he needed to do that because that was our problem. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and he paid for it. But the second way, beloved, second way he made us alive is through regeneration. By regeneration. So by forgiveness. But he also made you alive. By regeneration remember you were slaves of the flesh slaves of the devil slaves of the world walking in the desires of your passions and your heart and your body and the key word in verse 2 there's two keywords there it says in which you first keyword once you see that second keyword walked okay This was your past life. Once you were a slave of the devil, once you were dead in your sin, once you couldn't stop sinning. But that's no longer who you are because he raised you from the dead. That spiritual deadness that has no desire for God, no desire for his word is gone. He gave you a new heart. And now you no longer walk in that. So, of course, we still fall in our sin and we, we fall short of his glory. But that's no longer the pattern. That's why 1 John can say those who are born of God cannot sin. Doesn't mean that we don't sin. It means we can't continue in sin because God's word abides in our hearts. He has made us alive. That's what is meant by the new covenant. Listen to this. Some of us don't know this, but this is what the new covenant, God promised that this will be the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. It says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And listen, I love this next phrase. And I will cause you to walk in my, my statutes. Listen, that's how God speaks. I'm going to make you obey me. I will cause you. Because why? I'm going to rem- I'm going to do heart surgery on you. I'm going to remove that dead heart and replace it with the heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you that you may be careful to obey me. This is new life God has given you. It's not... A fake life it's a real life that's how you know you are alive right this is um, one pastor used this illustration he talked to his son his very young child he says how do you know you are born how do you know you are born right and he says well I'm alive right I move I'm breathing that's how I know I'm born and that's exactly how you know you are born again you are alive, right? But if you ask Christians, how do you know you're born again? What's the common answer? Well, yeah, I prayed a prayer when I was two years old or four years old. And yes, I gave my heart to the Lord at that age. And it's all about I did, I did, I did, I did, right? But how do you know you're alive? How do you know you're born again? You are alive. You have new appetites for God. You love God. You love His Word. You want Him. where well, you didn't want Him in the past. That's how you know you're born again. There is life. By the way, that's why we don't baptize babies. Okay? Because baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And if part of the new covenant is that you are truly born again, that you are truly saved, and that you are walking in newness of life, we don't give the sign of the covenant to those who don't, it's not a reality for. But if if you are alive, if you're spiritually alive, that's when we are baptized. That's when we give ourselves to Christ. That's the picture of baptism. Listen to Romans 6 verse 4. It says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Look at uh, Romans 6 verse 10. It says, For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you must also consider yourself, Dead to sin and alive to God. Do you see the transfer there? You're no longer dead in sin, but now you are dead to sin. Do you see the difference? You are now alive to God and dead to sin. Where it was the other way around. You were alive to sin and dead to God. There was a radical change in you. In other words, God made us alive in our justification and in our Regeneration, he freed us from the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin. So, yes, God loves you even when you sin, even when you fail. And no, you cannot continue in that sin, it's impossible. If you're truly born again, you you will stop because his spirit lives in you. You are alive, but God did something else too. Secondly, the second thing God did was not just to raise us, but he seated us in the heavenly places. Right? Look at verse 6. It says and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are seated with Christ already now. Spiritually, positionally, we are there. We are already home with Christ. That's the first thing that this means. We are secure to make it to heaven. We are secure to make it to heaven. We are seated already there. You are in a sense already at the finish line. You're already there. Now we are running the race. Now we are striving to enter into the kingdom of God. But you are secure. Secondly, you are also safe from spiritual forces. Remember chapter 1 verse 20. It says, That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So when Christ is seated at the, in the heavenly places, it's above all spiritual forces. And remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities. But we are safe from that, safe from finally being tempted by the devil to be drawn away from Christ because we are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. So, beloved, we don't fight the devil to gain victory. We fight the devil out of victory. We already have, Christ has already won. Christ has already conquered. We're just fighting him and resisting him, but we've already won. Lastly, also it means sharing Christ's rule. So being seated with him also refers to that reality that we will rule with Christ when he comes again. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's part of that blessings that are going to happen in the new heavens and in new earth. We will be reigning with Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we will have equal authority with Christ. No one has that. There's only one name that is above every name, and that is him. But we will share that authority. We will share in him, in us, in ruling the world. Even now, there's a sense in which we are sharing some of that authority, some of that rule and that reign. How? Well, by being part of his church, by sharing the gospel in his name. Remember when he said, all authority is given to me. Now go and make disciples. By building one another up in his name. By doing church discipline in his name. That's authority. In a sense, we're already sharing in that rule. But one day it will be complete. Beloved, this is what God has done. He is great. He's a great God who has given us a great salvation. You are alive. You are seated with him. You are new and you are safe. And lastly, let's close our time together with what is God's great purpose? What is God's great purpose in our salvation? Verse 7. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So if you really understand this, if you really feel your deadness or felt your deadness and Feel your your sinfulness and then see his love for you and he's he's making alive of you. One question that should be like, Lord, but why? Why me? Why would God take the lowest of the low, the, the sinful of the sinful, and make that person his bride? Why would God do that? Again, what? To show us the riches of his grace. That's it. You see, there's a theme in the Bible. There's a theme in this book. Why does God do everything He does? Why did He create the world? Why did He create us? Why did He send Jesus? Why does He save us? For the praise of His glorious grace. We are back with number one, God's great character. What is God's great purpose? For God's great character, to show the riches of His grace. And I love this. Specifically how? In kindness. right? Isn't that so beautiful? What is going to be... The the, the the gem of his grace to us, him being kind to you. Now that might not fall on you with such heaviness, but imagine being kind to Hitler. Right? We were like that that that's wrong <laughs> not to be kind to that man. But we are all like the spiritual Hitlers, we all are dead in our sin, in our rebellion against God, and God is going to be kind to us forever. And what's amazing about that is not just that, that it will be a kindness and a love and a grace that's going to increase. We are, our happiness is going to exponentially increase for all of eternity. So it's not like heaven and now you've reached the plat- plateau of joy. It is going to be joy upon joy upon joy and it's going to increase in ever increasing joy. And I think many of us, many of us as Christians, we only think of our salvation as something in the past. Something that God has done for us 2,000 years ago. But now it's up to us. Now we just have to make our own future. We have to get everything intact in and in, in ready by, and determined by us. No. But God saved us in the past to show us His eternal kindness to us in the future. Your short, very short, 60, 80 years, maybe, of your life is like what C.S. Lewis called the cover page of your book. When you go to heaven chapter one begins. So this life is is the cover. And heaven and eternity is like chapter one where every chapter is better than the one before. For all of for all of eternity. That is going to be your story if you are in Christ. Beloved, do you believe this? Do you have this hope burning in your soul? Beloved, let us worship Him. Let us worship our great God for His great salvation with this great purpose of showing eternal kindness to us. God saved us by making us alive, by forgiving us our sins, by walking in newness of life. And I pray that God might even use these words right now. For those of you who are still dead, those of you who have Perhaps listen to this entire sermon, and it felt like the words were falling on rocks. On was bouncing against the wall. Listen to me. Repent. Come to Christ. Don't harden your heart any longer against the God whom you know exists. You know He exists. Don't harden your heart against Him. Come to Him. Repent and believe, and be forgiven. Be saved. Be reconciled. Be made alive. And really, the word for you is chapter 5, verse 14. I close with this. Listen to 5, verse 14. It says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our smallness before you, our finiteness, our inability to always grasp and understand the full breadth and depth and height of your love for us. But Lord, we thank you for your word that is true, that is is a sure foundation for our faith and our souls and our evangelism and our discipleship. We thank you that you loved us first that you initiated this great salvation it was not us lord it was even while we were dead you have made us alive and we give you the praise we give you the thanks and i pray that this will motivate us lord for missions and will motivate us to die in a country where no one has ever heard of your beautiful name that we will share the gospel with people that so desperately needs to hear of the only way that they can be reconciled to god through the name of Christ, there is one name given among men to be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this amazing love, we thank you for this amazing grace. Lord, help us as your children to really put to death the deeds of the body and to walk in this newness of life which you have already given us. I pray for those of us here, Lord, that do not know you. Lord, please open their hearts, open their heart, their minds, and their eyes to see you and to believe.